Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to The Shift, the podcast that aims to tell the no-holds-barred truth about being a woman post-40. Created and hosted by me, writer and broadcaster, Sam Baker. Today, we're celebrating Menopause Awareness Month. Now, there's a phrase I couldn't have imagined saying four years ago when I was writing The Shift, the book, The Shift, and everyone was telling me, oh, no one's interested in menopause or women over 40. Well, I'll resist the urge to say, yeah, boo sucks to you. But anyway, I'm delighted that my guest is a leading light in the British menopause movement. Dr. Louise Newson is a GP and menopause specialist who is passionate about increasing awareness of menopause and perimenopause care for all women. That all is crucial. As well as her own private practice specialising in menopause, Louise is founder of the Balance app and the menopause charity. Plus, she's the author of the bestseller, The Definitive Guide to Perimenopause and Menopause. Do you know what? I'm a white, middle-class, educated woman who's really struggled to get treatment. Like, this is not right, actually. And I wish I'd say, you know, seven years later, things have got easier, but I don't think they have. I think they've got worse because women are more aware that a lot of their symptoms are due to their low hormones and no one's listening to them or few people are listening to them. Louise joined me to talk about her personal menopause experience. Sorry to say, even doctors struggle to get help. The lack of female role models in medicine and what drives her menopause mission. She recalls being told off for prescribing HRT, her battle to get women's health front and centre on the agenda, and she answers some of your most asked questions. Well, thank you for coming on The Shift. I would like to start by talking about you a little bit before we, we talk about menopause, if that's all right. Tell me um, a little bit about your childhood and what made you decide to become a doctor in the first place. It's interesting, isn't it? Thank you. Um, I think I've always, I am quite a kind person, you'll be pleased to hear as a doctor, but yeah. um, I've just always wanted to do medicine. And it's weird because I'm not from a medical background. No one in my family has been a doctor at all. And even when I was very young, and I was under nine. Um, I know that because I was with my father and I only had him till I was nine and then he died. But we used to play doctors and nurses and I would make him be the nurse. And I think that's quite interesting. Two reasons, because in the 1970s, there weren't many male nurses um, and he he did it. Um, but actually, I was very, very clear that I was the doctor. Um, and, and then after he died, I was obviously incredibly sad. I still am about it. But it made me all even more determined um, because he had a brain tumour, actually. And one of his main surgeon, Professor Watkins, was amazing and really kind, as well as the most incredible surgeon. But there was another consultant as well, who he sometimes covered on call and in the evenings when my father was more poorly. And he was just, he was just not a kind person. And it was very upsetting for my mum. And I thought, it's not just about how good you are as a 
as a doctor, it's how kind you are as well. Um, so yeah, so it sort of carried on from then and I was determined. And then when I was in the sixth form at school, um, I got a scholarship to Charterhouse and there were really clever people there. And it was the first time I hadn't been bullied for being clever. And, and then I thought, oh, maybe I shouldn't do medicine. Maybe it's just because I always wanted to. Maybe it's because of my father and everything else. I've sort of gone into this for the wrong reason. So I tried to convince myself that I could, um, maybe read chemistry or or become do an en- engineering or something because I really really enjoyed maths and chemistry and physics, um, but then I thought oh, really it just doesn't interest me. Um, yeah. So doesn't um, make your heart no. Sing, and I yeah. think I mean I'm sure you agree. The older you get, it's so important to try and enjoy your job. And not every job is enjoyable. Every job has challenges. But actually, I feel it's such a privilege to be a doctor and to have a job that actually the clinical side of my job, I adore. I absolutely love it. And when I know I have a a list of patients on a Monday, um, I I dedicate it just to my clinic. And it's just the best day ever. I love it. So I'm very fortunate for many reasons. Because you weren't always a GP, were you? No. You trained as a, you were a hospital doctor initially. Yeah, yes. So I wanted to do oncology, actually. I'm very interested, and maybe because of my father having cancer, but I wanted to do cancer medicine. And when I trained in Manchester, very fortunate you have an option, if you want to, to take a year out and do a BSc, so a three-year degree in one, as you do. So I did a three-year, I did a um, pathology BSc, which um, was great, actually, because you had time to reflect, really look at the science, um, dabble a bit with academia and, and uh, uh, research, which was really great. But then I really wanted to do oncology, really did my exams, worked um, in a cancer hospital in Southampton. But then I just thought, um, I'm not sure it's really what I want to do, but I still want to do something in a hospital. And then I got married in 1997. I just finished my exam. So I was a member of the Royal College of Physicians. But then I sort of had a bit of a wobble and thought, hmm, I really think I want children if I'm blessed and can have them how am I going to do it and have a husband who's a surgeon and see my children and my memories of my father are really strong but if he was just working all the time and waiting for that time that his children were older or retirement I would never have any memories so I um, looked for a female role model and I, I still can't really find one in medicine but I couldn't find one then and it was very hard to go part-time as a as a hospital doctor in the 90s and so then I decided to pivot into general practice and actually even some of my male consultants I remember saying to me oh Louise I wish I'd done that I wish I was a GP I thought oh dear um and I really enjoyed the holistic nature of general practice and it was definitely the right thing but even then actually it was interesting because even my mother said oh oh a GP oh, right. How am I going to tell my friends? I thought you wanted to be a you know, professor of oncology. And I said, All right, mum, I'm still a doctor. And so there's this perception. And even so, yeah, and, and it's, it's, you know, she's incredibly proud of me now. But, but it makes me realise that, you know, GPs get bashed all the time in the media. We see it, don't we? But, but even a lot of bullying that's going on behind the scenes to me, a lot of it is because it's from hospital doctors trying to tell me that I'm not clever enough to do what I'm doing. And it's such a shame. And so, yeah, and and general practice is interesting, but I think the more skills you have in any job and the more diverse background you have, you bring different sort of tools to the table, if you like. So if I had just gone into general practice from the word go, hadn't had so much other training, I think I would have been a very different doctor now. If you were having kids now, do you think it would be easier to combine being a consultant with having children or do you think the situation hasn't really changed at all? I think it has, but it depends on the specialty, actually. Um, So there are some specialties which are quite clearly defined in hours. So anaesthetics, for example, is more of a shift that you can, in some areas of of anaesthesia, it can be easier. In some areas, it's not. General practice used to be easier when you had children, but now most of my friends who are GPs work 12, 13-hour days. So, you know, my my daughters were in nurseries when they were younger. They close at six. Many GPs don't finish work at six. So I think it's it's hard, actually. I mean, you you made a good point just now about GP bashing, and I often find that on social media, you know, you talk about menopause um, and we have all talked about menopause for the last few years and, and you for a lot longer about 
how hard it is to get help from your GP. And that does seem to automatically be translated into GPs are crap, which is deeply unfair, but also then kind of draws a line under the conversation immediately. Yes, it's really interesting. And I'm obviously really careful what I put on social media and I try and be professional because, you know, I do follow the GMC code of code of good medical practice it's very important to be professional to your colleagues and all I do is recount stories that I hear um but actually I was saying to a a GP I was speaking to earlier today who is on the government menopause task force with me and we were just reflecting about the meeting we went to this week and um you know she was saying as well um it's uh it's so difficult because you see so many people, but also I said to her, do you know, I wish I could go back in time. I really do. And become a GP who's got all this knowledge about the menopause, because to be honest, my consultations would probably be quicker because I used to see so many women who would come back literally weekly with urinary tract symptoms, infections or just urinary incontinence, not, not just, there's nothing just about urinary incontinence, but, you know, incontinence problems, or they'd have some total body pain, or they'd have some headaches and migraines, or a lot with their mood symptoms, poor sleep. And and I honestly did loads of blood tests on them because I thought maybe it's their thyroid, maybe they're anemic, maybe there's something else. I'd do it, refer them to a cardiologist for their palpitations. I would, you know, try them on an antidepressant, didn't really help. They just so it makes people really flat and very unemotional. I don't think I'm depressed. And I would just be thinking, I don't know what to do for these people. Like, why wasn't I thinking about their hormones? Because no one had taught me and I didn't have that clinical experience. And in medicine, it's not just a science. It really is, you learn on the job. And like lots of people do, you learn with experience. And so this pattern recognition, I've seen so much with thousands of women I've seen now who are menopausal or perimenopausal. I didn't have that clinical knowledge and experience and neither did the doctors I work with. And in fact, the few women I did start on HRT with, I was told off for doing that. Um, So it's a shame because, you know, I was no different then. But I would tell you that that day I did as a general practitioner, I worked really hard and I was really good and I was really caring and I had the most amazing appraisals. But actually the women would be saying, but it's sort of different now, I think, though, because... A lot of women now are empowered. They weren't empowered 10 years ago when I was looking after these women. And what saddens me is that they are going to their GPs and saying, please, can I have some HRT? And then they're being told no. So there's one thing not recognizing symptoms. And I understand in a 10 minute consultation, it's very difficult. Um, And that's often about the training and awareness and everything else. But the thing that saddens me is that the women who are just told no, I saw a lady um, who's one of our patients, actually, who came down from Scotland to see one of um, the GPs that works with me in the clinic. And she had just been told, no, you can't have HRT. End of. And even now she's told that, oh, if any of the clinic letters come from Newson Health, we put them in the bin and have a laugh because what she's doing is terrible. But where's the where's the choice for women then? And how are we not allowed an evidence-based treatment as women if that's what we want? And I think that's where I get really frustrated, actually, is that women aren't being listened to or not allowed a treatment. There are so many different, so many things to unpacking <laughs> in that. Um, why, just out of interest, why were you told off for prescribing HRT on the few times that you did? Well, it's interesting because, and it still is now, actually, you only need to open the insert of an HRT patch or gel. It will tell you there's a risk of clot, there's a risk of blood pressure, there's a risk of breast cancer, there's a risk of heart disease and stroke. Of course, there isn't. This is based on older types of HRT, not relevant to the packet that you you, you use if you're using a patch or gel or even vaginal hormones. Like how can vaginal hormones cause any of that because they don't get into the bloodstream? Um, so the doctors were learning from, you know, older patients papers they weren't up to date and so they were learning what they believed was right and it was a hangover from the WHI study obviously telling the world how dangerous HRT was so they were very entranced and knew or thought what they were saying was right I had a luxury of being a part-time GP so on the days that I wasn't working as a GP I was a medical writer and so when you write even if you're writing for the lay press or certainly when you're writing for other healthcare professionals you have to know your stuff and I suppose because of having an academic background 
I'm quite happy reading quite academic papers and translating them into short sentences, words of two two syllables. And and so it means that I really understood what I was doing. I wasn't just doing it because someone told me it's a good thing to do. But in medicine, especially in general practice, you're on a hamster wheel. You're just so busy. And even my children now say, gosh, mommy, on a Monday when you came back from general practice, we, you were exhausted. You were like a zombie. We, there was no point talking to you on a Monday. And I can't imagine that feeling on a Friday if I was doing five days. So then you don't have the time to read. And, and you know, you can always do top level. It's like reading the front page of the sun and thinking that's where you're going to get your academic information. Of course not. But you've got to have this professional curiosity, but you've got to have time um, and energy to reflect and think. And, and, and guidelines are often so out of date and they're often written by a skewed population of people as well. Um, so they believed in their part that I was doing harm. But the sad thing was that he didn't say, oh, really, Louise, I didn't know that. You know, I didn't realise that there was a reduction risk of heart disease and there was no risk of clotal stroke through the skin. It was just a very much blanket, but they were men and I'm a woman and they were GP partners and I was a part-time salary doctor. So it's, again, this hierarchy of medicine that occurs. So at what point in your own medical training were you, did you receive any training about menopause? Well, I remember once we had a physiology lecture in the either the first or second year as medical student. Um, I remember it very well. I don't know why. It was a nice, busy, really clever guy with a red sweatshirt. And we had the acetates. You probably remember, you know, when they draw things on, the, on and they wheeled it round. There's no PowerPoint then. Um, and he said about heart disease. He was talking about heart disease. He was talking about atheroma, talking about cholesterol. And he said, it's really interesting because women have a lot lower risk of heart disease than men until the age of 50. And then they catch up and everything's the same. Their risk then is the same. We don't really know why. And I thought, well, there must be a reason. There must be a reason. And, and then in my pathology degree, actually, we did a lot about um, inflammation. Um, and at the time, I thought some of these lectures were a bit dull because they were talking at a very a small level detail about our inflammatory cells. And we have cells um, that obviously fight infection. And one of the cells is called a macrophage and it sort of gobbles up infections, if you like, and keeps us healthy. But um, the lecturer, Professor Stoddard, was talking a lot about pro-inflammation. And if these macrophages are not happy, they turn against us and, and cause inflammation. And we, we went into a lot of detail. And then I read a paper about how estrogen, so estradiol, which is our, our most common type of estrogen, is anti-inflammatory and it switches these macrophages on and it can increase their number. It can genetically reprogram them. It can increase the way they work and improve the way they work. Sorry. Um, and I thought, oh, isn't that interesting? Wow, because all these inflammatory conditions are associated with the menopause, including cardiovascular disease, but also osteoporosis, type 2 diabetes, dementia, even Parkinson's disease, and even clinical depression are thought to be inflammatory diseases. So let's go back to my pathology days and try and put the pieces together. So it's very interesting, actually, when you when you look at it all as a, as a sort of big picture rather than just, oh, it's a woman with hot flushes. So at what point in your career did you become passionate about increasing awareness and knowledge of the menopause yeah so when i when the nice guidance came out so in 2015 in november 2015 the nice menopause guidance came out they were the first menopause guidance that had come out and i was just starting to do more reading and reflecting um, about the biological effects of hormones and so i um read the guidance and they're quite conservative but they still the, the take-home messages for most women benefits outweigh the risks so i thought oh that's good my partners will be off my back. I can prescribe a bit better. And I was 45 then. And some of my friends who were my age or a little bit older were starting to get a few of the symptoms that I were now realising were more than hot flushes, of course. Uh, but they were coming out of their GP surgery saying, oh, Louise, I've got some treatment. I'm going to start to feel better. I said, oh, what have you got? Oh, I've got citalopram. I've got venlafaxine. What? That's antidepressants. Why are you yeah. having antidepressants? I'd never give that if I knew someone was menopausal or perimenopausal. They said, oh, well, they've told me HRT is too dangerous. So I couldn't have that conversation. And then I went to my first menopause conference. It was in um, Amsterdam, actually. 
And I was started at the same time to do, have a clinic because I wanted to help some of my friends, mums from school. So I went to the local private hospital and I said, could I have a clinic here? Because before then I'd gone to different GP practices, some of these big multi-clinics. I've been to the local gynecology department to say, could I run menopause clinic? No, no, we haven't got funding um, because it's all about heart disease or blood pressure or diabetes. So anyway, so I did it privately because I just wanted to help people. And then I'd um, set up a website as well because I thought I'm going to use my medical writing and knowledge to help. Meanwhile, I started to see not just local people, but people that traveled for miles. So people from Scotland, from Bournemouth, from Wales, telling me that they'd given up their jobs, that they couldn't function. And it all started when their ovaries were removed in an operation or when their period stopped and no one had helped them. And they weren't people with money, but they just had heard about me and really wanted help. So when I went to this conference, I'd written down some quotes because I have a notebook of quotes that people tell me about how, you know, the colour from life has gone. I'm just existing. I'm not living. My joy for life's gone. My zest from life's gone. All these things I'm sure you've heard as well. So it was really sad by them. Yeah, I was so sad. So I wrote them down and I'd written a couple of booklets, basically what is the menopause, what's HRT, that I started to give patients in my clinic. So I went to the then president of the International Menopause Society and I said, oh, I'm really shocked by these stories and I've got a list here of some quotes and these are some books. And he just pushed them back to me and he said, well, Louise, this has been happening for years. I wouldn't worry, you know, almost your little precious head about it. And then he looked at his watch and said, oh, if you don't mind, I'm going to go and have Sherry and I'm talking to some of the other board members. And I thought he might say, come and join me. And of course he didn't. So I'm there like feeling about three. I thought, right. So then I went to all these lectures and all these very learned people talking about how safe HRT was and how effective it is at disease prevention. And I thought, well, people aren't knowing this. What can I do that's different? Because then I was on my own. I had no other forms of salary coming in. I had no other team to help me. So I thought, right, what can I do? What can I do? Okay, I'm going to play with the media and social media and allow women to have this knowledge that I'm very privileged to have. So I went back and developed the website even more, started to engage in quite a chaotic, dangerous way, really, with journalists, because you can't trust everything you tell a journalist, but sort of said to them, look, do you know, actually, these are the nice guidance, HRT is safe, it's about women's choice. And so and then I started to sort of knock on the doors of Royal College of GPs, Department of Health, and just trying to make them realise there are risks of not taking HRT, as opposed to just risks of taking it. But meanwhile, this, the women kept coming to the clinic, <laughs> So then I had to go from one to two to three days a week, had a waiting list, and then got one of my friends, uh, Rebecca Lewis, to start to see some patients. And then five years ago, almost to the day, we opened our, our menopause clinic in Stratford-upon-Avon. Um, and we wanted to have four doctors working with us. And now we've got 104 doctors working with us. Um, and in COVID, obviously, everybody changed, but we realised we could do remote consultations and um, so we just became busier and busier and we've responded to the needs of women, really. But in the meantime, I feel very uncomfortable having this big private clinic that's only helping people that have got big enough pockets or that they've saved enough money. So I also then obviously developed the Balance app because I thought then I can give people information wherever they live, whatever their income is. And we wanted to make sure that Balance was always going to be a free app um, with no adverts or anything else. We didn't have any external funding for it. So we've done it really for the needs of women. And then also developed an education programme. Because in my mind, if women are educated and healthcare professionals are educated, then I can just lie in a dark room and everything will be done. So that's been great, actually. And the clinic actually is an enabler. It's a financial enabler as well, that a lot of our profits are given to all these other projects as well. So I'm not doing this on my own. And it's a choice that I've made as the founder and major shareholder of the organisation that we need to help as many women as possible. So, you know, put our money where our mouth is and uh, really try and help.
in so many different ways. Well, what was your own experience of menopause <laughs> through this process? Well, this is a story in itself, I suppose. So I was 45, I've just said, when I was starting all this. And I've always worked hard. You could probably tell I'm quite geeky and academic. And so then um, when I was doing my website, I've often try and work in the evening because my children were young. And I was finding it really hard to stay awake in the evening. And my husband would say, what's wrong with me? You look awful. I said, I'm just so tired. I just feel like I've been drugged. So um, I would feel very tired, go to bed, go to sleep. Then I'd wake up at three in the morning, drenched in sweat, feeling absolutely awful. And I'd had pancreatitis a few years before. And I don't drink alcohol. It was really, but I was very ill then. And I had sweats with the pancreatitis. And I thought, oh no, something's coming back. This is awful. And I do yoga, but my joints were really stiff and sore. And then my migraines were worse. My mood was terrible, but I was trying to open the clinic. I was trying to do the website. I was trying to do all these things as well as be a GP, as well as a mum of three children, as well as a wife, as well as la, la, la. And I just thought, oh, this is what it's like when you're mid 40s. Um, But I was really on edge. Like my husband's breathing was annoying me. Everything was frustrating me. Um, And it went on for a little while. Meanwhile, I started to educate healthcare professionals and was saying, think about more than just flushes and sweats. Think about moods. Think about joint pains. Think about. Anyway, it carried on for a few months. And then my daughter, who's now 19, but she must have been about 13, 14 at the time said to me one time, Mummy, do you know you're so stroppy? I was like, what do you mean? Yeah. <laughs> and she said, How dare you? <laughs> and she said, well, you're just like some of my friends, just before their periods, they get really cross and then their period comes. Do you need your period? And I just went, oh my God, Sophie, I've not had a period for about four or five months, but I'm sure I'm no different to many women. I wasn't monitoring my periods. I didn't track them. They just come and go. And when you're busy, you don't really notice. And then I literally sat down and said, Sophie, do you know what? I'm perimenopausal. And then she said, oh, no, that makes you sound really old. Don't say that in front of me. Um, But then I was so relieved that there was a reason, but I still couldn't get help. I I knew my GP wouldn't prescribe for me because they didn't prescribe because... Oh, well, they still So you were working on helping other people. You didn't recognise your own. No perimenopause and then you couldn't get help no and that's what the last bit was the bit that frustrated me the most so I had to see a specialist who I know I say I'm fortunate I know people and I phoned up his secretary of the clinic and said I'd like to make an appointment and this was in the June and she said yes he's got an appointment on the 23rd of December and then I was very cross because I was so irritable and I said do you know who I am I can't wait that long and I've lost my job by then and probably my husband and my family she said, oh, okay, Louise, I do know who you are. I'll fit you in. Um, and the worst thing is, actually, I had, remember very clearly, he put me in one morning at nine o'clock. And at 10 to nine, I was with one of my daughters. And I said, oh, in 10 minutes, I've got to make this really important phone call. So if you could just do some colouring and be quite quiet in the background. And she said, yeah, okay, mummy. Anyway, five past nine, I got this phone call and it was from the doctor. And he said, Louise, were you not going to phone me? I went, oh, completely forgot. Like 10 minutes, I just forgot because that's how bad my brain was. And so then he he gave me some HRT, great, but it didn't really work. My mother-in-law was saying, oh, you're feeling better because she's been on HRT for many years. I said, no. Um, and then I had my blood test done and my estrogen level was still quite low. And he said, well, increase your dose. You're not absorbing it properly. I said, oh, well, that makes sense. It doesn't really stick on very well, the patch. So, um, so I had a stronger uh, double dose and then it started to feel better, but I still felt like I was thinking through treacle and I couldn't concentrate so then he said, what about testosterone? I said, oh, I'm, I prescribed it a bit. I don't really know much about it, but I have read a lot about it. So I tried that and then waited three or four months. And then I haven't looked back. But I have looked back thinking, do you know what? I'm a white, middle-class, educated woman who's really struggled to get treatment. Like, this is not right, actually. Um, and I wish I'd say, you know, seven years later, things have got easier, but I don't think they have. I think they've got worse because women are more aware that a lot of their symptoms are due to their low hormones and no one's listening to them or few people are listening to them. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing that always worries me is that I'm the same. You know, I was lucky Mm. in inverted commas enough to, you know, be a magazine editor who had a health editor who had basically recommended a private gynae, Claire, who you know, mm. who had sorted out 
all kinds of terrible period problems that I'd had. I don't know, meiosis and polyps and fibroids. And, and so I didn't even try a GP. I just went to see her and went, what is going mm. on? You know, I'm a shadow of my former self. I don't know who I am anymore. You know, but it's probably been two or three years feeling like that. And it was only really when I started having the enormous night sweats mm. that I thought, oh, is it menopause? But I also, I was 46 and I also thought I was too young, which, you know, was not the case. But, oh, there's so so many questions. HRT is such kind of hot potato, isn't it? I mean, it used to be that you couldn't take it because it was dangerous or you were a traitor to the cause because you're, you know, feeding the pharmaceutical machine or you're medicalizing something that shouldn't be medicalized. I mean, I'm on HRT and it has changed my life. Um, what do you think, though, what do you say to people who dismiss it or say that you are like trying to make people take it, that you're over-prescribing, all of that kind of backlash stuff? Yeah, I think it's really interesting, actually. I think, number one, it's about choice. I'm not standing with a banner outside my clinic saying, come here, I'm going to force HRT on you. So that's not how I would practice anything in medicine. So I think that's really important. The other thing is, is I do look as much evidence as possible. And there isn't always evidence, but there is clear evidence, definitely, that's undisputed about HRT being first choice to improve symptoms because you're treating the underlying cause. And also there is definitely enough evidence that it reduces risk of cardiovascular disease and osteoporosis and clinical depression. Dementia, it's a bit out because the studies haven't been really well done. We also know the longer a woman is without her hormones, the greater the risk of all these inflammatory diseases. Then there's a risk of people saying, well, you're over-medicalizing the menopause, which is a natural process. Then I think, well, actually, it's natural to be you know, in pain in childbirth, but we give drugs for it. The older we get, we're far likely to have raised blood pressure, but we treat it to reduce risk of a heart attack or stroke. So where do we stop in medicine? And then the other thing is, if you talk about over-medicalizing the menopause, many, many women, in fact, the majority of women I see in my clinic are being medicalized already with drugs that actually aren't treating the underlying cause. So they're having antidepressants, they're having painkillers, they're having sleeping tablets, they're having blood pressure lowering treatment, they're having statins. So they are being given treatment that actually we don't have long-term data on it. We don't even have good quality evidence. If you look at the evidence for statins for primary prevention of cardiovascular disease, studies have been done in men, not women. So we don't have good evidence, but we can prescribe all these. So we have to be really careful what we're saying. And I think the other thing to think about is let's think about the risks of not taking HRT. So if we're menopausal and we've been menopausal without hormones for a little or a long while, not taking HRT increases our risk further of all these diseases, whether we have symptoms or not. But also many women, we know the majority of women have symptoms which can affect quality of life. We also know about 10% of menopausal women will give up their jobs due to memory problems, anxiety, fatigue. And so that's quite a big economic problem too. So I think we just need to think about, and a lot of people are scared about HRT because they say, oh, there's a risk of breast cancer. Well, most types of HRT have never been shown to be associated with the risk of breast cancer. And estrogen on its own has been shown to be associated with a lower risk of breast cancer. But then most women actually die from heart disease and dementia. So we have an evidence-based treatment that certainly reduces risk of cardiovascular disease, probably dementia. It's dirt cheap, it improves quality of life, and it doesn't reduce risk of other diseases. Yet it's been under-prescribed because we know only about 14% of the menopausal women in the UK, about 4 to 6% globally, will receive HRT. So there's lots of sort of counter-arguments there. And, and of course... What is also happening is that people are saying, oh, Louise, all you're doing is saying HRT is a magic bullet. And if it's not HRT or nothing. So we spend a lot of time in the clinic. And I do personally as a menopausal woman, thinking about my diet, my exercise, my sleep, my well-being. There is no point me taking HRT 
and drinking a bottle of wine a day, smoking 20 a day and having McDonald's for breakfast. I have to think of the bigger picture of what I'm doing for my future health. But I know for once, me personally, if I wasn't taking HRT, I probably would be divorced. I probably wouldn't have a job. I probably would be eating rubbish because I couldn't be bothered to cook. And I would definitely have given up my yoga practice. So that's a personal choice for me. You know, and I think that's the other thing. It gets this whole, this debate of it all has become really toxic. And I think it's because it's a treatment for women. And I've been to NHS England meetings where they say, well, it's just a lifestyle drug. People take it because they want nice skin or hair or they want to look like Davina. And I feel that really sad. But there are, you know, the risk of suicide increases seven times in women in their late 40s. We have to be really clear about this and think it's not just because we want nice skin and hair. So I'm going to keep pestering and keep annoying people because, you know, but allowing people to know I don't have a hidden agenda for any of this at all. You know, I, I would I would love it to be freely available for people who want it, but I'm certainly not sort of, you know, pushing it and making money unnecessarily from women or exploiting women at all. You know, there are lots of, we see loads of women from private clinics who have all sorts of things done. And I can't see many of these other private menopause clinics who are helping in the way that we are with the free balance app and our education program as well and everything else. And also just for complete transparency, I do no paid work with pharmaceutical companies, nor do any of my organization. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. What advice would you give women who who can't afford to go private and are being told no by their doctor? I think the most important thing actually is to be a really good advocate for yourself and do your homework before you go and see a doctor or if you've been pushed away for your next appointment. Having the information is really important. So obviously there's a free balance app on our Balance um, Menopause website. There's over two and a half thousand resources where people can just learn and find something relevant for them. Download the symptom questionnaire with a health report on it. And then I would say go, if you can, with a friend or someone that knows you well and actually say to that healthcare professional, I would like some evidence-based treatment. I've read the NICE guidance and I know that there are benefits of taking HRT. There might be risks, but I'm prepared to take the risk the same way as I've taken a risk coming to see you and crossing the road or whatever. Um, But actually, could you tell me the reason why you're not allowing me to have a treatment that's mentioned in the NICE guidance that's... um, I know will improve my well-being and probably reduce my future risk of disease. And then I think it's really important to just listen and hear what's said because most GPs want to do a good job. They might not have the right education, but then if they still push back and say no, you're quite entitled to have a second opinion from someone and say, could I see someone else who is going to enable me to have HRT and maybe think about the reasons why you want it because personally, I... I'm really worried about osteoporosis. So I really want to take HRT to keep my bones strong. And we know that HRT is mentioned in the guidelines as being a treatment to reduce fragility fractures. So 
I, as a, you know, if I was going to my GP, I would say, you know, I would like this for my bones and my future, future, um, you know, reduction of risk of osteoporosis. And then I think it would be really hard for a doctor then to say, no, sorry, you absolutely can't. Um, but it's it's sort of what you don't want to do is go and say, oh, I've got this symptom and that symptom and the other symptom and I'm all over the place and then burst into tears and then the doctor's thinking, oh, I've only got 10 minutes. And then, you know, so I think if you're armed with information that's reasonable and evidence-based and you're very calmly going and saying, and then just turn it around a little bit if they say no and say, could you maybe write down for me the reasons that you're refusing? Because I can't in my own mind understand why I'm not being allowed this treatment. I think it's a good point as well to look at the, you know, the other things like osteoporosis and dementia and heart disease and UTIs, you know, things that other things rather that so you cannot be dismissed by the, oh, you just, you know, some one person said to me that she'd been basically been told her GP had said, oh, you just want it because it's trendy. Yes, I know. I hear that a lot. So for people who... Uh, don't want to take HRT or or can't for cancer-related reasons, for instance, what what would you suggest for them? I know everybody's different, everybody's in different circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. I think think the most important thing is actually seeing someone who's got knowledge and experience to talk through your individual case because there's no one in medicine that can't have something you know you can never say no as much as I try sometimes my children we all know you can't say no in medicine and we have to think about informed consent as well so I'm sure you know if I um, was offering you a life-saving treatment and you decided and you were a consenting adult that you didn't want it for whatever reason you can refuse it even though it was against what I was advising you to do so we I find it really hard and sad actually I spoke to a lady the other day who had breast cancer a few years ago now it was a very low grade very small cancer and she was really crippled physically crippled as well as mentally crippled with her menopause she was using crutches she couldn't really get out of the house she was really anxious very low in her mood really not enjoying anything and she tried lots of supplements and alternatives her local menopause clinic said there's no point seeing you you can just exercise and take some other supplements so she actually saw one of my colleagues and uh is now taking HRT because she knows there are benefits to her and she decided to try it for a short period of time. And now she doesn't use the crutches. She's absolutely fine. She's working. She's a researcher. And she's made that individual choice, but she said, I might have a risk of recurrence of my breast cancer, but actually I'm really enjoying my life. And I, I would go through treatment for breast cancer again if it meant that I could have this reduced risk of osteoporosis of both. And she's made that individual decision. And I think that's the first thing is having that decision that's right for you. It wouldn't be right for other people and that's fine. When we look at what alternatives there are, it's not just about symptoms. We've already said there are health risks as well. So if people don't want HRT for whatever reason or decide that the risks are too great for them, it's looking at what are their symptoms and is there anything that can be done about those? And sometimes it's lifestyle, sometimes some supplements might help, not great evidence, but some people find they help. There are alternative medications we can prescribe, but we're often limited by side effects with those. But it's also looking at their future health. So what are they doing to reduce their risk of osteoporosis, heart disease, dementia? And that's where spending time looking at exercise and diet is really, really important because obviously looking at ways where we can reduce our sugar content, reduce processed foods. But actually, whether you take HRT or not, we should be doing that. But it's it's really important because people, I think, have focused so much. I mean, you only need to go into, um, you know, a pharmacy now and you'll see thousands of feels like thousands it's probably hundreds of supplements and menopause shampoo and menopause face cream and it's just this plethora of products but what are they doing how are they helping us and and it's looking at the, the good things to take and not wasting money on things as well so it's really I think we all should be looking and thinking right we're menopausal or perimenopausal how are we going to invest in our future health? And what's right for us? You know, we all make choices, don't we, about what exercise to do or what to eat. And as a doctor, I'm not going to say to someone, I forbid you to eat chips or I forbid you to drink whiskey. It's, they've got a choice as long as they know the, the health risks or benefits of making that choice. I canvassed the shift community for 
for questions. And I've got to tell you, these are, you know, these are people who are part of a community that's aimed at women like them and talks about menopause all the time. And I was absolutely swamped with questions. Um, I've tried to like scoop them into general questions. So to hopefully get an overview, but one of the things, I mean, HRT, a huge, you know, huge subject in many areas. I mean, a couple of different people who had had cancer, one who had breast cancer and had to stop HRT because it was estrogen positive, has now induced menopause and she's got, you know, she's got hot flushes, mobility issues, pain in her bones, brain fog. And then somebody else who had a radical hysterectomy, which was also linked to estrogen receptors, so can't take HRT, also got brain fog, memory issues, hot flushes. And they are both saying, what can I do? Where do I go from here? Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, estrogen receptor positive cancers, actually, there's estrogen receptors all over our body. So if the more you look for estrogen receptors, the more they'll be there. It doesn't mean that their cancer has been caused by estrogen either. And that's really important because a lot of women will be told it's estrogen fed or estrogen driven or estrogen dependent. It's not at all. If a, if a breast cancer is estrogen receptor negative, it's because it's mutated and become more aggressive and it's lost its receptors as opposed to it gaining receptors if it's estrogen positive. Um, and We've just done actually a massive piece of work. We've been using something called the Delphi process, which is a uh, research-driven process where we've involved breast cancer surgeons, oncologists, radiotherapists, um, menopause specialists, um, a urologist as well, looking at all the evidence for giving HRT to women who've had estrogen receptor-positive breast cancer. And the evidence is quite weak, actually, showing that there are risks. And there is still evidence that there are benefits as well. Um, so we've put together these, these consensus statements that we're just submitting. Literally now we've just signed off the article this morning um, for publication. And I think that's going to really help people because it's, again, showing about choice. Because whether a woman's had breast cancer or, or uterine cancer or not, they still got an increased risk of osteoporosis. They're still actually more likely to die from heart disease and dementia. And we see quite a few women in the clinic who've had cancer a few years ago and say, Do you know what, I'm more worried now about my quality of life and about my osteoporosis risk than I am about my breast cancer recurrence risk. Um, so we need to look at it's in a bigger picture, really. But the other thing is some of these women are given estrogen blocking treatments as part of their treatment for their cancer. And some of them literally, the aromatase inhibitors, strip every single cell of estrogen from their body. And I've seen women who literally tell me they've been crying in pain overnight because they have such bad bone pain or they've had recurrent urosepsis, so sepsis due to a urinary tract infection. And we've been told they have to take these drugs for five or ten years. A really good, um, there's, a, there's a good website called the predict and it, it's like a mathematical model where you look at the benefits of each treatment if someone's had breast cancer and you put in the type of breast cancer and what treatment you've had and if you look at the hormone blocking treatments often they give like a one or two percent improvement maybe three percent which basically means 97 out of 100 women are having a treatment that they'll have no benefit from but three might and that benefit might be reducing a risk of recurrence not of death which are two very different things, of course. So we need to then allow the women to make a choice. And what some women actually do is change their their blocking treatment or they have a drug holiday, so they stop taking it for a few weeks. And that might really reduce their symptoms. So it's not just about HRT or not. It's looking at what other hormonal treatment or... I see a lot of women who have recurrent urinary tract infections, really bad vaginal dryness that they can't sit down, they can't wear underclothes, and they've been told they can't have any any estrogen at all. Well, of course they can have vaginal hormones because they just go into the vagina, they don't have the bloodstream. And then the other hormone that we've not mentioned is testosterone. And testosterone actually has been shown in studies to be beneficial for some women who've had breast cancer. It can induce apoptosis, which is sort of programmed cell death. It's very anti-inflammatory. I suppose I am a feminist. I've got to be a feminist, haven't I, to do this sort of work. My husband's a urologist. If he sees somebody who's had a prostate cancer that's local into the prostate gland, they remove it and then they monitor these men or they remove the prostate. They don't give them hormone-blocking drugs. And one of the reasons they don't is because the side effects are so horrible. It would really affect 
men's sexual function, it will affect them mentally, exactly the same as it affects women. But we're sort of over-treating women who've had breast cancer. And are we under-treating men who've had prostate cancer? Probably not, because the prognosis is good. A lot of men die with prostate cancer, not from it. The same with women have breast cancer, but don't all die from it. So it's quite barbaric almost that we're just saying to these women just let's get rid of all your hormones and the men like oh. and actually some men if they have low testosterone still have testosterone once they've had prostate cancer so when women say no to hrt we need to think is it no to vaginal hormones is it no to testosterone and that's where the individualization of care is really important because this suffering that these poor women have to endure I find is really sad and a lot more breast surgeons oncologists are sort of waking up to the fact that we can't just blanket treat people the same. Lots of people ask me and and I like to know myself as well actually to ask what happens if you if when you stop taking HRT do you suddenly have a menopause or do you basically take it forever? Yeah, it's a good question. Symptoms really vary in the way that they, the, the amount of time they last. So some people's symptoms last a few months, sometimes a few years, sometimes decades, but they can change as well. So some people might start having the flushes sweats and then they might get joint pain, they might get fatigue, they might get anxiety, and then they might get urinary symptoms. So it really varies. All you do when you're taking HRT is replacing the missing hormones. If you stop HRT, you'll just be how you would be otherwise if you weren't taking HRT. So it doesn't really delay your menopause. It just um, it will just sort of unmask what's going on underneath. But say, for example, if I stop taking HRT, if I took my patches off, then quite quickly I have an increased bone turnover. I'd have increased inflammation in my body. I'd have an increased risk of diseases. So actually, I personally take it because I'm worried about osteoporosis. Um, So it's not just about symptoms. And then the guidelines will say you just be reviewed every year. And if your benefits don't outweigh the risks, you can carry on. There's no other hormonal treatment that we would give to people and stop it after a few years. The reason they used to stop it is because they were worried about the breast cancer risk. But actually, now we're giving the body identical hormones. No studies have shown there is a breast cancer risk. And if there is, we have to remember the risk is low. Even the worst study showing the greatest risk with, with the synthetic hormones, combination of hormones, the risk is still lower than a risk a woman has if she drinks a few glasses of wine a night or if she's overweight um, or if she's not exercising. No one's telling these people off if they don't exercise, but they're telling them they can't have HRT beyond a certain age. It doesn't make sense. Several people asked about the pill. Uh, one woman is on the, has been on the combined pill for years and years and alongside estrogen patches. And she's asking, does she need to keep this combination post 50 in order to be considered to have hit menopause? Yeah. So obviously HRT, because it's ironic, isn't it? The dose of HRT is so low, it doesn't work as a contraceptive. Yet women can take synthetic hormones in the contraceptive pill without any worries, although the risks are greater than with HRT. So there are contraceptive choices for women who want HRT. Um, Obviously, the marina coil is a great way because it stops periods and it's it's really contraceptive. Um, The utrogestan, the micronized body identical progesterone, isn't licensed as a contraceptive, although if someone's on it and doesn't have periods, it probably is okay. But there is a type of progesterone-only pill, which we can give for women as a double up of um, the contraception and for HRT for the progesterone part. So there are options, but you wouldn't need to be on the combined pill and HRT. There are also a lot of questions, which is something I haven't really considered because I haven't had periods for so long. A lot of questions about periods in relation to when will they stop? Or as one um, one woman's GP said, oh, they'll eventually peter out. So, yeah. I mean, it's interesting that everyone thinks the menopause, perimenopause is reduction of periods. And of course, you have to not have a period for a year to be officially menopausal. But a lot of women find their periods are a lot heavier, a lot more frequent when they're perimenopausal because of this chaos of estrogen and the imbalance between estrogen and progesterone. And the body. But when we start HRT, if someone's having periods, then we often give it in a way that they still have periods, but only for six months to a year or so. And then you can change the way you take the HRT. So you have the progesterone all the time. So the periods stop. And it's kinder for your womb to not have periods. And most of us 
don't want periods as well. Um, no, so, I'm glad to see the back. Yeah, then. totally. So once people start, then then you can stop. Someone said to me last night, actually, at an event, well, how do you know then when you're menopausal? Well, the only way to know is to stop everything, wait a year, and see if you have any bleeding. But what's the point of that? Like, it doesn't, no one gives you a medal or a badge if you're menopausal as opposed to perimenopausal. And we know the evidence, it's a lot better to start taking HRT when you're perimenopausal, when your hormones start to decline. And we often give a lower dose and then increases the your own hormones reduce further to match the deficit. I'm wondering a lot when you're speaking, is the NHS able to provide this level of service and re-analysing prescriptions and things? Yeah, they have to think about investing to save, to be honest. I mean, we did a, um, a just a study of our patients in the clinic and the year before they came, 17% had seen at least six healthcare pr- practitioners, so mainly GPs in the year before they came. The year after that went down to 2% of people had seen, most of them don't see, they just go once a year. Um, And also they're not being referred to secondary care for all these investigations. Um, And also they're not on as many drugs as well. And we know, um, you know, just preventing disease. So I sometimes play mind games and think, what would the world look like if everybody who needed or wanted their hormones back had them? There'd be far less chronic diseases, which are very expensive, far more common in areas of deprivation. There'd be far less investigations. There'd be far less admissions to hospital. There'd be huge cost savings. And actually, there'd be more women in the workplace. Wouldn't that be great? There'd be more women on boards. There'd be more women being promoted. And even if you look just in the NHS, we know that 40% of NHS employers are menopausal women. So 10% are giving up their jobs. We did a survey recently and showed that 37% would want to reduce their jobs and change if they could because of their menopause. So even if we just focus on the NHS's own employees, you'd see a massive difference. And you've got to remember, HRT is really cheap. So yes, you might have to go to the doctors two or three times at the beginning. You know, even in our clinic, you'd be really surprised. People come once and they come after three months for a review. They start testosterone, they come back after about five months. The most of my patients I'll never see again because they're so stable, they just get it from their, H, their, their GP, or I only see them once a year. It's, it's not labour intensive at all. One woman has, has asked, and this is a bit, it, this makes me feel a bit sad, when will it start getting better? <laughs> I mean, she has been on HRT. She says she's postmenopausal, and, but she still suffers symptoms that are mainly controlled by HRT. But I think still feels really, and I hear this so often, and I'm sure you do, still feels kind of defined by it and still not herself. Yeah. I mean, a third of people who come to our clinic are um, on HRT, so they're not on the right dose and type. And I think that's really important to know that sometimes people need to have it changed and optimised. So there's very few people who still have symptoms when their HRT is completely optimised that we definitely worth speaking through to make sure. Because a lot of people say, oh, I can't, HRT didn't do anything to me, there's no point, what else can I do? And then you look and you see that they're just on the wrong dose or they've not tried testosterone. So we've got to balance our hormones properly before we know. Um, before we wrap up, I'd just ask, like to ask you a little bit more about testosterone. I mean, it's kind of a, it's generally comes up in conversation in relation to libido. But many, many women, I mean, I know I know many women who say that their libido has gone completely the other way since they've been on HRT, but many, many women I know who are on HRT say their libido is still through the floor. Is testosterone an option for that? Is it, what, what would you... Yeah, so, so obviously there's many reasons why people have reduced libido. It's not just a hormonal thing. There's all sorts of reasons. But we do know that testosterone can improve libido in women. And nice guidance do say we can consider it for women who have reduced sexual desire despite taking HRT. So we do offer it and give it to many women. We've got a lot of women who are in our clinic who take testosterone. But they also find that their mood, energy, concentration, stamina improve. They also find their muscle strength um, is better, their sleep's better, their joint pain's reduced. We've done um, just a survey looking at the symptom improvements on 
over a thousand women now who are on testosterone in addition to HRT and their mental health improvements are more significant than their libido improvements. And we know it's no surprise, you know, testosterone works in all sorts of areas of our brain and our body. Um, So, you know, look at the basic physiology and understand how important testosterone is the most biologically active hormone we have as women. Yet women have to sort of prove that they've got very low libido before even being considered, which I think is quite barbaric, actually, to have to you know, discuss how psychologically distressed you are with your reduced libido before being considered a natural hormone. It's part of a, the whole conversation though is part of a a wider problem, isn't it? The Mm. way that women's pain has traditionally been dismissed. Oh yeah. You just needed to look at the, you know, the word hysteria and hysterectomy. Mm. It's all derived from our wounds, isn't it? And we're crazy. We make things up in our heads and the medical gaslighting that goes on sadly is quite rife. Since the conversation has kind of exploded in the last two or three years, do you feel like we're seeing meaningful change or do you feel like it's chatter? Depends what mood I'm in, to be honest. It depends how positive depends I'm Depends on your hormones, Louise. Mm. Well, yes and no. I think, I think sadly, like a lot of things, I think the really powers that be don't understand it. There's a lot of political agenda. There's a lot of... Um, yeah, there's a lot of people that don't understand really what the menopause is and the problem is some of the conversation at a high level has been led by people who don't have clinical experience and practice and knowledge. Um, but I think on the grassroots, it is changing. Absolutely does. I feel like a sort of new energy the last few months, just looking at the way sort of just the media work, the social media work I do, the sort of women are helping each other and that feels really powerful actually. I feel like there is this sort of movement Kate Muir who worked with me on the Davina documentaries is um talks about this revolution and I think there is something going on that feels really quite important because it's real it's not just playing lip service to it and I think it will change keep I think it will keep going for future generations actually is there change that you know of happening in the NHS in terms of information dissemination and training there is work going on in the NHS, um, but it's taking a long time and it seems very circular. <laughs> um, I don't want to be rude, but there, um, I think in areas of the NHS, the NHS is a big organisation, so there are some people that work in the NHS, it's phenomenal what's happening, but there's quite a lot of talk about it. It's all very well to talk, but you've got to walk the walk as well. I'm going to wrap up by asking you the same shallow, trivial questions I ask at every, the end of every episode. Um, firstly, what's your emotional age? Oh, again, it depends. I sometimes think like I'm a screaming toddler, actually. So I would say about two or three. (laughs) Um, I just tantrum because I don't get my way and become very emotional and irrational. So um, I don't think I'm irrational. I'm rational, but I'm frustrated. And and that hasn't has that changed as you've got older or Yeah, I think I was more like a teenager when I started because I'd be very sensitive and very sad and cry a lot. And now my heart's become hard. And I've become just constantly frustrated, actually. Um, but also, I think I've become older as well because actually, I was at a really high level meeting yesterday, and someone emailed me to say, How did you stay so calm and respectful? So I've got a bit of my mother, this sort of, you know, this sort of wise, like, there's no point having cat fights. You might as well just smile with a knife behind your back a bit. So I think I'm maturing and regressing at the same way. Am I allowed to say that? Does that make sense? (laughs) Yeah, of course. What advice would you give younger women? Be savvy. Get all the knowledge you can. Be on it. Work out what's going on. Know your hormones before they control you, definitely. Who is an older woman who's inspired you? My mother, actually. She's she's, she's like me. She can get quite feisty, but with reason. And she's quite fiercely independent and um you know she's she's had some really hard times I can't imagine having the person that you love and adore dying at age 40 you feel really cheated um but it's made her strong and she's brought up three children and you know she's still there listening to me supporting me she clearly takes HRT um but uh, yeah she's she's probably the person that I would look up to the most what's your superpower I think my superpower is that I'm determined and um, I think yoga gives me a superpower actually because it makes my brain calm down a bit and reflect. So I think I have a superpower of being able to meditate even though my brain is going 100 miles an hour 
I think that is a superpower. I I struggle to, well, I gave up. I tried to meditate for a while, but I just gave up. No, not enough discipline. Excuse me. And last one: How many fucks do you give? <laughs> Actually, not many. I don't. I don't. There's so much that I just think I don't. I, I'm not doing this for me. I'm not doing it for a certain reputation. So I suppose I don't give a fuck at all, really. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. And thank you for sharing so much wisdom. I know that a lot of women are going to be really grateful. Oh, thank you. Thanks for the work you're doing. It's great. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear some alternative perspectives, try my episodes with Dr. Jen Gunter, Mariella Frostrup, and Karen Arthur. You'll find a link to these and the Dr. Louise Newsom podcast in the show notes. You can hear a new episode of The Shift each Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please do rate, review and follow because it really does help other people find us. And if you'd like more of The Shift in your life, head over to theshiftwithsambaker.substack.com and sign up for weekly newsletters, podcast extras and more. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.